Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Mark Jameson talks to Beverly Gower-Jones, managing partner of the Clean Growth Fund. With 30 years' experience, Beverly is a world expert on the investment in and commercialisation of environmental technologies. In a wide-ranging conversation, Mark and Beverly discuss how a better, cleaner world can be achieved through imaginative and responsible investment and examine the feasibility of achieving net zero carbon emissions in the UK by 2050. Welcome to this podcast on how we will live. Um, My name is Mark Jameson. I'm a chartered civil engineer and the Middle East and Africa Council member for the Institution of Civil Engineers. The particular podcast today is titled Net Zero Investment. What role do investors play? And with me today is Beverly Gower-Jones, who is managing partner of the Clean Growth Fund. Beverly uh, not only chairs the investment committee and guides the investment strategy of the Clean Growth Fund, but she has over 30 years experience in the international energy sector and is a thought leader in commercialization of sustainable technologies. She specializes in accelerating innovation to market and scaling companies by providing strategic insights developing industry partnerships and identifying novel ways to become overcome the barriers to entry. Ultimately, her ambition is to create a better, more sustainable world, and she believes that that can be done through innovation in and a transformation role in our economy. She co-founded and is CEO of Carbon Limiting Technologies, a low-carbon business incubation consultancy, and prior to that, she worked with Shell Technology Ventures. She chairs the BEIS, Energy Entrepreneurs Fund Commercial Panel, and that has supported clean tech ventures with more than £72 million of funding. She's a fellow of the Energy Institute and holds a degree in mining geology from University College Cardiff. Beverly, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to be here. So as part of this Expo 2020 series, we're looking at innovation and in particular the challenges of how are we going to get to net zero carbon equivalents by 2050 and is indeed that a feasible target. Within this and particularly for today the questions really are going to revolve around the role that investors play and how key is the financing and the funding of new technology and the influence that investors play in ensuring that we actually do take this climate change situation seriously. So, Beverly, what I was kind of keen to start with was just a little bit of understanding about the Clean Growth Fund set up last year and really kind of what's, its, what's the purpose, what's the mission for the fund? Certainly. I set up the Clean Growth Fund with a UK geographic focus 
to invest in the very best and most promising low-carbon cleantech companies that offer the potential to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions across power, buildings, industry, waste and transport sectors. The Clean Growth Fund's main purpose is to support and scale businesses that are developing the solutions required to achieve net zero carbon and prevent resource overconsumption. And in terms of the challenges, I mean, this is obviously the first and the UK is obviously leading the path here. But, but your experience doesn't just encompass growing up in Norfolk and, and being a UK citizen, but rather you've, you've worked as far away as Brunel and Egypt. Has there been a significant light bulb moment when it comes to the net zero imperative? I think there kind of been a number of kind of key touch points um, that, you know, I can um, recall, which kind of probably all came together in in maybe that light bulb moment. So um, I I was an avid, avid scuba diver um, and recall seeing kind of coral reef bleaching and marine life deterioration, which was really hard to ignore over a you know, period of, of years. And um, you know, when I lived in uh, Brunei in Southeast Asia, um, you know, that country boundary was kind of defined by whether the forests were um, chopped down or not. And the scale of deforestation was, was enormous. And, um, you know, you couldn't help but thinking that just wasn't sustainable uh, in, in terms of biodiversity. Um, and, uh, you know, and then another moment when I had a very heated debate with colleagues as to whether, you know, our generation and our age would be known as the age of communications or the age of pollution. And and I suppose realising I was very heavily on the kind of side of the age of pollution, um, I decided I'd better do something about it. And just in terms of the fund, for our listeners out there, it's not a, a government fund, is it? It's actually independent. Yes, that's correct. Through my time at Carbon Limiting Technologies, which is the consulting firm I founded in 2006, um, I worked with over 350, 400 low-carbon SMEs, entrepreneurs during that time. And time and time again, I could see they really struggled at you know funding for the first commercial demonstrator, that kind of three to five million pounds where you know angel and family and friends money couldn't get there. And um, more generalist venture capital firms were, you know, telling them to come back when they'd got five million pounds of revenue. And so I set about the vision and mission and so on for the fund through both private sector institutional investors and also, um, you know, public sector um, organisations as well. Obviously, you you know you're starting to see some um, fruits of 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 your endeavours there, and and um, my understanding is that equally, it's again now not only leading the way in terms of what we do in the UK, but it's actually also being looked at by a number of other interested parties um, and other countries, and and presumably it's kind of feels good to be able to share some of that knowledge and and hopefully encourage others to follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's it's a pivotal moment in our in our time. You know, this next ten years is is really critical, um, and to uh, have the the blueprint for a, for a fund that combines both public and private um, sector investing, um, and be able to share that um, with uh, with uh, with other countries to be able to kind of grow their own um, GDP is really key. And it's investing in technology 
which is going to go a long, long way to helping us reach the net zero targets and pledges that we've each individually made um, from COP26. And, and so it's really good to be able to kind of share the blueprint for the Clean Growth Fund with others. In terms of the technologies, I mean, obviously, this, this is really at the core of it, I, I presume. Do you have some examples, some tangibles of what you're looking at in terms of those investments and, and what, what we're hoping to achieve with them? Yeah, so the Clean Growth Fund is relatively technology agnostic. We seek to invest in businesses which can demonstrate their ability to abate significant quantities of greenhouse gas emissions or improve resource efficiency. And we're looking for solutions which are commercially viable and investing in businesses which are either pre-revenue or generating early revenues. So to give you some specific examples, the fund has invested in five businesses to date. Piccolo, which is a software platform for trading flexibility on the electricity grid. Um, Indra, which is a developer of flexible and bi-directional electric vehicle chargers for, for the home. Um, TPO, which is commercializing a zero emission boiler based on dry thermal storage. Carbon Re, which is a digital twin and optimization platform to enable energy intensive industries to decarbonize. And Holofirm, which is an industrial biotech company that's patented a semi continuous process to make soaps from natural materials displacing petrochemical derived products. So there are five of the kind of investments that, that we've made to date, and you can see that they span um, a broad range of technologies and, uh, and applicable into a number of different um, sectors. Wow. And what would you say identifies the critical ingredient that makes these successful investments? Fundamentally, it's the management teams that are critical the dedication and perseverance, the focus to deliver a product or service to a market that meets the market need. And by that, I mean that's something um, that a customer has said they want to buy. Um, that ability to see ahead and change tack when market conditions change uh, uh, is kind of really that critical fundamental ingredient. But of course, there are several other important factors, um, including genuinely innovative intellectual property, um, a real kind of product market fit, um, robust business model, you know, the timing needs to be right and access to funding, of course, um, you know, having other co-investors is, is also uh, really helpful. I mean, just in terms of context, are you seeing a lot of people knocking on the door to, to promote their products and, in the UK? And, and how do you filter through some of that? I mean, you've explained what you're looking for, but, but clearly it can be quite challenging even to, to sort of identify and and sort of equally promote to, to those that you know have the great ideas the the tenacity the the drive but perhaps just don't know where to go and look for the funding yeah we have um, a really healthy pipeline and some really excellent quality businesses that that we're seeing coming through from the uk which is some um, great in terms of that kind of um, filtering process an opportunity comes in either through our website or, or through a competition we might be judging or, um, you know, a contact we know makes a referral. So uh, multiple different ways in which we receive, um, you know, deal flow and interesting opportunities. And then um, we have a, an investment team that uh, reviews those on a, on a weekly basis. 
those that uh, we we feel we'd like to take forward we allocate uh, and assign um, two of the investment team as as point contacts on on that particular opportunity uh, and we then take that through a a review and diligence um, process and and for those that are not um, successful or, or fortunate enough to um, to be selected, we do try and um, write to each and every one of them and try and at least give them some feedback in terms of why they weren't selected on, on this particular occasion. Quite often that can be because, you know, potentially they're not in the funds kind of target focus area. And if you think we have to make some 20 or so investments roughly over the kind of five-year period of the fund's investing life, then, you know, unfortunately, we have to say no more often than um, than, than we're able to say yes. Of course. And in terms of the sort of target, is, is it still very UK-centric or are you looking at organisations coming from abroad to bring technology to the UK or likewise UK organisations that are looking to export that technology? At the moment, we're looking to invest in companies that have a predominant or majority of their business in the UK. That, of course, doesn't exclude UK companies exporting because uh, that's a key way of increasing the revenue stream for those companies and actually of the companies we we have currently invested in a number of them have you know export as part of their business plan and so um, we're very happy to to fund and help and support them achieve that for companies that are looking to come into the UK from abroad i think you know we're very keen to um, to receive those uh, those business plans and those pitch decks Obviously, it's important for us that they have some kind of UK footprint, you know, before we can invest. But we're certainly happy to uh, to review those proposals, you know, if, if that's the intention of that uh, particular entrepreneur or company. Moving us on a little bit to the so the broader questions, obviously, um, in the quarter four last year, uh, the UK hosted COP26 in Glasgow. How do you evaluate the impact of that summit and equally the ability of the UK to achieve net zero um, by, by 2050 along with everyone else? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting and, and big question mark. Um, I think, uh, you know, whilst COP might not have delivered everything that we wanted, there are many positive outcomes and it certainly paved the way to ensure that nationally determined contributions will be revised every year. You know, which provides a lever to ensure that every country takes a step forward annually, which hasn't been possible previously. So it's increasing the pace and urgency to act, which is critical. Um, if we look at kind of the four, you know, kind of key metrics and, and parameters in terms of cash, coal, cars and trees, for cash or, or climate finance to assist developing nations cut greenhouse gas emissions to cope with the impacts of climate change, more than 450 banks pledged to align their investment you know, with net zero in that deal that was spearheaded by Mark Carney. What we need now, of course, is action. Um, you know, The Glasgow Pact agreed to double the portion of funding going towards adaptation, which I think um, was really positive news and something that nations were, were seeking and, and looking for. In terms of coal, there was some change in the language over phase out versus the phase down um, phrasing. But actually, you know, when you think about it and you look at it, it's the first time that a COP agreement has made direct reference to abolition of fossil fuels, which is clearly what needs to happen. And any investor, you know, um, for example, I wouldn't want to invest in a sector that was phasing down. 
and for fear of losing my investment or having it as a stranded asset. And similarly, if I was seeking a job, I wouldn't look be looking to be employed you know by a company in a shrinking market so i think the direction of signaling is uh, is is really clear and in terms of you know cars and trees that there were 34 countries committed to banning sale of internal combustion vehicles um, by you know 2014 2035 country depending and and for trees you know 130 world leaders um, representing 90% of global forests have agreed to reverse deforestation by 2030 being backed by 14 billion of public and private funds so big steps forward in any perspective i think technology of course because technology is what you know, we're really interested in at the clean growth fund there was significant commitment to speed up commercialization of affordable clean tech in power, road transport, steel production, hydrogen and agriculture. And the UK pledged to become the first net zero financial centre. So all the pledges and all the um, language is certainly in the right direction. But, you know, we need action and we need action now from everybody, whether you're a country, a city, a corporate or an individual. We all have to make that transition happen And we have to act today. And so now is the time for doing that. You know, the UK's ability to reach net zero by 2050 will depend on its actions today. We're already two years into a critical decade. You know, global temperatures are set to rise by 2.7 degrees. And only concrete steps will close that growing gap to one and a half, which we're all so desperate to hang on to. And this is a crucial 12 months. The difference between 2.7 and one and a half might sound really small, but the impact is massive. A small change in the average um, temperature difference means a massive change in the extremes. And so, you know, we're already seeing days that can be minus 36 degrees in Sweden and plus 31 degrees in Greece, which is a 62 you know, degree temperature differential over a really short distance. The Committee on Climate Change recommends several actions, um, so strengthening the delivery of the net zero strategy, reviewing the role of the tax system in delivering net zero and specifically fossil fuel subsidies, widening the scope of carbon footprints, including carbon border adjustment mechanisms and trade levers on products, and encouraging stronger corporate actions to decarbonise supply chains. And so in summary, then, I think COP did deliver and and did have a, a big impact but I think it's, it's really down now to the actions in terms of uh, you know, what we all do to deliver on those commitments. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the UK experience is taken forward, particularly with the UAE hosting COP28 in a couple of years' time. And obviously the UAE, we're here at sort of the expo. This is the great exposition to promote the best of, of every country, but also, I think quite rightly, promote you know what future tech looks like, what clean tech looks like. And it's interesting just to see how, with the likes of the Clean Growth Fund, you are absolutely driving the next innovators and allowing them that step up to help us achieve some of those 2050 goals. But is there anything that you've learned from COP26 and indeed from the from the work that you've done with, with Shell and with the Clean Growth Fund that you would be looking to share with the likes of those attending Expo? I think the the key thing is that there's probably something like 40% of the technology that we need 
that we don't have yet to actually reach our net zero targets. And that might be because technologically it's still being developed or that it's not commercially viable. And so I think the key thing I think I'd like to leave with people in the expo is that uh, it's about um, trialing different technology you know, once we've all decarbonized power and moved to electric sources of, of power and we're all driving electric vehicles, what else do we need to do? And so how can we um, remove diesel gensets, for example, or um, decarbonize heating and air conditioning in our homes? We need to engage with new technology at a domestic level, at a business level, at a city level and, um, you know, allow those innovators and, and entrepreneurs um, the opportunities to trial that technology, to understand what the market needs and wants and, and really accelerate, you know, that commercialization through the learning curve. Obviously, also last October, uh, UK hosted international investors at the Global Investment Summit. This event had focused on investment opportunities in green technology. How do the sort of the role of the international investment funds differ from the clean growth fund? So international investment plans um, can play many roles in UK green industries and, and elsewhere, of course, such as establishing automotive manufacturing, developing offshore wind farms, building gigafactories for batteries. So it covers all different types of investment finance, um, you know, often for kind of longer term, larger capital type projects. The Clean Growth Fund, in contrast, is very specifically focused as a venture capital fund. We invest in seed and Series A stages, so what would typically be considered as early stage disruptive technologies, or another way to put it, you know, SMEs that are seeking in the order of total round sizes, five to 10 million to take their business to the next value inflection point. There are international investment funds, of course, that have a similar remit to the Clean Growth Fund. And where possible, we seek to co-invest alongside these types of fund managers. So we like to syndicate our deals and we're always looking for co-investors to work with that can add strategic value to a portfolio or investee company. We're aiming to try and waterfall as much private money as possible into the clean tech entrepreneurs and companies. And so giving other more generalist types of investors the confidence to be able to invest in the sector based off our knowledge and understanding, um, having been working here for you know, 15, 16 years. And so it's not a problem, you know, it can be solved by our fund alone. We want to encourage as much capital as possible to uh, flow into the ecosystem. And in terms of the drive to these funds, I, you know, I'm conscious from from being in the construction world that that there has been a, a shift in in sort of real estate investment. Do you think that the world of corporate and sort of pension fund investment is changing? How much longer do you think those big investors will continue to support the non green tech, um, non green industry? Is it imminent? Is it something we're going to see over the next sort of five years or is it going to be a shorter time frame? I think it'll be transitional and uh, I hope that time frame is um, relatively short. The COVID pandemic has brought the biggest recession, you know, um, most economically destructive events of the past 125 or so years, including the Great Depression and the global financial crisis. And governments and world leaders, financial institutions have really taken the opportunity to build back jobs and prosperity. And there is a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to shape a better energy future and make that economic recovery as sustainable and resilient as possible. 
So with the kind of nationally determined contributions from COP and site of bankable low-carbon projects, a significant transformation is beginning towards a cleaner and more resilient economic growth. And so the reallocation of tens of trillions of dollars of capital towards green investment really offers the potential to reshape cities and energy systems and land use around the world. And so I really hope that we can use this as a stepping board and really speed up and accelerate the investment into um, cleaner and greener funds and projects and also businesses. You, you touched on the impact of COVID and, as you said, quite rightly, it's had a dramatic impact across the world in terms of, particularly in terms of economies and the ability to move. Yet it's also potentially had a positive impact in some areas, just in terms of the overall environment. So I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this is, is I think we all recognise that we perhaps don't need to do as much travel and do as much running around as we once did. We can do meetings through the use of video conference and other, and other mechanisms. But what do you believe is the sort of impact of COVID in a positive sense? Do, do you see the green investment opportunities now growing exponentially? I do. Um, I think when we look at the, you know, the trillions and trillions that were um, pledged and, and committed as part of COP and the leadership of, uh, you know, Mark Carney, um, Bill Gates and so on, we're really seeing significant movement now of, you know, tens of trillions from governments and financial institutions into a more green and resilient growth, which, of course, is the right thing to do. You touched on Bill Gates, and obviously he's created the breakthrough energy organisations, the funding for those, but he set some fairly tough tasks in that they've got to be able to reduce emissions by at least 500 million tonnes a year. How does the Clean Growth Fund sort of measure value in terms of impact to the environment and from the investments that you're making? Yeah, return on carbon, as I call it, is one of the key performance indicators, key metrics for, for the Clean Growth Fund. Um, we ask each of our potential investees to complete a climate assessment report that asks the entrepreneur to assess the carbon that could be saved by one defined unit of their technology and to also estimate the cost per tonne of carbon abated by that unit because, of course, it has, well, has to be affordable at, at the end of the day. And then finally, the report looks at the realistic potential of those greenhouse gas emission reductions over five and ten years um, if the commercialisation of the technology is successful. And this is evaluated by an independent assessor um, who's an expert in the industry or technology in question. And this is one of the key considerations which goes to our investment committee when deciding to make an investment. I think also it's, it's really important to um, visualise what we're talking about here. You know, 500 million tonnes of carbon is the equivalent to the total greenhouse gas emission of the UK. And of course, there are complexities in this measurement process. For example, is the carbon saving direct or indirect? Is the solution in question responsible for all of the abatement calculated or is it facilitating further abatement from existing technologies? So some of the companies in our portfolio, Piclo and Carbon Re, for example, they enable the solutions and they enable the, uh, the carbon reduction. There are other unintended environmental or social implications, possibly, from the scale-up of novel technologies, which we also have to take into consideration. So, you know, nickel, manganese, cobalt have all sparked much debate in, in this area. So I think it's natural and, and inevitable, really, that you know, different funds will treat some of these complexities differently. 
I think the crucial point is that the more funds targeting positive environmental impact, the better. There are many important technologies which will ultimately abate less than what some climate tech funds are, are perhaps uh, targeting and the way that those greenhouse gas emission reductions are actually calculated and, uh, and, and reported. Indeed. And I think, uh, you know, coming from an industry that unfortunately has to uh, currently has cement as one of its key ingredients, there's, there's a long way to go. But certainly, I think it's fascinating to see the the efforts that are going in from different ways of creating cement and other things that will help the construction industry move forward to just the way that we look at efficiency and effectiveness. But I still feel that, you know, it is going to be exactly as you said, the SMEs that have got that entrepreneurial spirit and understanding of value that will ultimately lead us a lot of the way out of this, um, particularly in our industry. Coming back to sort of the UK and, and, and you know, I'm very conscious that you know, for those that have visited the expo, you will see the uh, UK pavilion is, is set up as an AI pavilion to take words and create phrases and, and things. From your perspective, obviously, AI presumably is going to have a significant part to play in how we actually address the energy equation and solutions going forward. Yeah, I think it will. The digital revolution in, in terms of Industry 4.0, so being able to predict maintenance of, of, of equipment and so on, rather than, um, you know, kind of wait for it to, to break, etc. The ability to um, you know, synthesize patterns and so on from big data will make a large difference in the decarbonization journey, especially when we're looking at managing fleet vehicles, electric fleet vehicles, for, for example. I think it is worth to say, though, that, you know, AI and software on its own won't decarbonize and won't get us to net zero. A lot of the clean and green technologies we see are a combination of hardware with maybe a software component to it, you know, be that um, the zero emission boiler that we were talking about, you know, as a strong hardware component, but with an um, intelligent control system. And, and it manages and monitors, um, you know, how much heating is, is being used in the home at, at particular points, uh, you know, during the day. So it's that combination, I think, of, uh, of the hardware with that artificial intelligence, um, which will really make the difference. I think, you know, what, what's interesting is it's going to be seeing how one can encourage the SMEs, the entrepreneurs who have the passion and also that ability to really make the difference by engaging with both technology and indeed new innovations to help us with the energy equation. So I guess one of my next questions is really how and what makes the UK a good country to build and develop clean tech companies? The UK has a strong net zero strategy and a real commitment to be a global leader in the decarbonisation journey. Um, as a nation, of course, we instigated the Industrial Revolution. And so, um, you know, there's a real drive. Um, we really want to be at the forefront of ensuring we lead the energy transition to net zero. And so, you know, because of that, the UK was the first country to enshrine the carbon targets into law. Um, and in demonstrating this, we've decarbonised the power sector and are well on the way to selling um, electric vehicle only transport cars. The UK is really well served with um, you know, world renowned universities and knowledge institutions like the National Physical Laboratory, as well as collaborative research programmes, which is a real valuable resource for entrepreneurs to tap into. And 
A third of UK FTSE 100 companies have signed up to net zero, so really strong industrial partners to buy those low-carbon products and services as they um, you know, come to commercialisation and, and come to market. So I suppose in summary, I'd say that you know, in the UK, we've created and established an ecosystem to provide complete support to commercialise low-carbon technologies, including world-class universities, accelerators and incubators, you know, like those offered by Carbon Limiting Technologies, the consulting firm I founded, a leading investment environment, um, real professional services with lawyers, networks and events, and corporates looking for low-carbon solutions to decarbonise their supply chains. That's fascinating. And how do you see the all-important government support for this, both at a, at a local level and indeed at a national level? I think government support can be kind of defined in many different ways and is needed at many different levels. For example, the description, the framework in terms of what constitutes a green project to make sure that the financing can really go to things that are truly green. You know, how is carbon reporting and counting undertaken? How do we bolster the emission trading system? All the rules around offsetting to ensure that as businesses and fund managers, we don't double count. And how do we make sure that, uh, you know, offsetting are going to truly green um, forestry and peat and biodiversity type projects and that companies only offset when they've done as much as they can to reduce their scope one, two and three emissions. And offsetting is really the kind of thing of last resort rather than being the kind of easiest thing to hand. And then technology standards for things like hydrogen, um, you know, in terms of taste and, and, and smell and safety. And then, of course, um, you know, looking at packaging and so on, we've got things like eco-labelling. And of course, you know, we need that government input for things like carbon border adjustments and the fossil fuel subsidies that, that we talked about earlier. So for the UK to be established as a leader committed to clean tech development. We need to stay true to our commitments and our policies, and we need to show that we're taking clear and decisive action to abate emissions. So strong policy support is absolutely crucial. UK global leadership is our main lever. We have to affect climate change as our own emissions make up only 1% of the total. So it's absolutely vitally important that to maintain a place on the world stage, we, we really do follow through with the, the policy and the, and the government leadership um, and commitment that's uh, that's required. You brought up a really important and interesting point there. The term greenwashing is one that has cropped its ugly head up. For those that don't quite understand it, it's in, in essence, it's it's jumping to go to offsets rather than actually trying to reduce first and then offset afterwards in its broadest sense. I I mean, that must be quite a challenge for, for organisations like your, yours to, to make sure that, you know, the tech that is being invested in isn't going to just be a greenwash. All the people at the Clean Growth Fund and at Carbon Limiting Technologies have strong science degrees and, and really strong heritage and background, having worked in, uh, um, you know, the, the relevant corporate sectors with, with strong kind of technology discipline. And so the uh, due diligence that, uh, that we do on the companies we invest in is very, uh, very strong in terms of really understanding, 
you know, what the impact is on greenhouse gas abatement and, and also on uh, resource efficiency and, and, and circular economy type businesses with, with those types of business models. And so through that, you know, we make absolutely certain that the companies we invest in have a really strong environmental impact. I think that's fantastic to hear, you know, how in reality, organizations, entrepreneurs coming through your fund and getting that support are clearly going to be delivering what they're committing to. But it's an interesting point. You know, the UK, as you said, is taking and has taken leadership on a global scale. And we've just seen that recently with the president of COP26 visiting Egypt and the UAE to to help promote and, and drive through the next steps that are required to achieve the commitments that were set out in COP26. And I think the question I had is, if the UK is going to try and maintain that leadership role in green tech funding, in green tech um, creation, how is it going to do that? And how does it work in terms of organisations like yours that are, that are you know, perhaps looking at the slightly lower level in terms of the macroeconomics of this, you're looking at the individuals, the SMEs, but presumably there needs to be some joined up approach to allow the promotion of what the UK does to also influence those, whether they be the Americas, Africa, or indeed the Far East. I think leading by doing is the best form of leadership. I think we do need to look at these carbon border adjustment mechanisms. We do need to look at you know carbon reporting and, and, and accounting and um, and eco labeling. And in the same way that we decarbonise the power sector with wind and solar and renewables, we now need to take those next steps. We need to look at how we decarbonise um, buildings, how we decarbonise our energy intensive and our industries. And, and we need to keep rolling forward with those policies and things that, that are needed to encourage business and industry and work with um, business and industry to be able to decarbonise these next kind of harder, if you like, to abate um, sectors. But yeah, it's it's got to be leadership by doing. And presumably with the difficulty level ratcheting up, that's actually where the likes of the Clean Growth Fund become even more important because it is only through that sort of innovation, technology and passion that will actually get to the that embedded carbon issue to get to the harder abatement targets. Yes, I think any net zero um, target and commercialization of any technology requires a, an ecosystem. It requires um, kind of all the actors to, to move for something to be successful. So um, that's looking at the supply chain. Um, that's making sure we have the right standards in place, that the investment's there. You know, that we have the professional services um, and the networking to, you know, to be able to um to move and, and connect our industry with the with the innovation. And so, you know, for, for success and, and to move to, to net zero, the, the Clean Growth Fund, if you like, is kind of one of the actors in that, uh, in that ecosystem. We're very conscious that, again, on a global scale, there was the launch by the Duke of Cambridge and David Attenborough of Earthshot in 2021. How do you feel that such initiatives help the public engage with the need for clean technology? I mean, I, th I think this is kind of one of the things that, you know, again, 
you, you, here at Expo, you can get to see some of the technology being implemented, but but across the globe and indeed across the UK, um, you know, are, are these sort of initiatives going to be triggers to perhaps get more entrepreneurs and more people and more young people, you know, the, the, the children of today to become the entrepreneurs that deliver clean tech next five, 10 years? Really interestingly, David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2 series was watched by some 60% of the UK population. And actually, it was the most watched television programme of 2017. So it really woke the public to the plight of marine life and the volume of plastics in our rivers and oceans. You know, the garbage patch has been in the um, ocean for, for years, but uh, it was really, you know, th- these, uh, this type of programme that, that brought that to, to life. And something like, you know, 78% of surveyed audience said it made them care more about conservation. And so the public was actually driven to act. And there were huge, significant increases in internet searches. And people started recycling plastic. It showed something like, you know, I think there's something like a 55% increase in, in plastics recycling. So things like this and the Earthshot Prize really engage the public by bringing the issue of climate change into people's front rooms in a really interesting and engaging way. And so in terms of, um, you know, raising their awareness to different types of clean technologies, um, because it's a slightly harder subject matter, I think, to, uh, to get over, the journey and the benefits of those different technologies, I think, is something that, you know, we could think about. So, you know, education and schooling, um, marketing on brands, local initiatives and events to really bring things close to home, which I think is really helpful. And particularly, you know, ensuring products and services um, are transparent regarding their environmental impact. So Trainline and Google Flights, for example, tell consumers the emissions associated with their journey. And I think this needs to extend further to, um, to other goods and services that, uh, that we buy. People are often asking me, what can I do? And so on the investment side, of course, there are crowdfunding platforms where individuals can invest directly and they've grown hugely in the last few years. But investing in clean tech businesses is not without its risk. And therefore, maybe um, specialist fund managers like Clean Growth Fund um, are perhaps best positioned to make those investments. And in fact, the biggest single thing anyone can do is write to their pension fund and their MP and ask what they're doing to invest in green projects and low carbon technologies and, and ask them what they're doing about the climate change agenda. But of course, it can be difficult to find your pension fund manager um, and to know what to say. And so sometimes it slips to the bottom of the list. But actually, um, switching a pension from a default fund to an ethical or environmental option can usually be done with, you know, a few clicks of a mouse. And and so that's something that, uh, you know, people who are thinking, all right, what can I personally do about this? You know, that that could be a really proactive um, piece. And I was thinking maybe if the pension fund managers actually proactively wrote to all their members to ask whether they'd like to have their pensions invested in clean and green projects, Funds and technologies, you know, it, w- it would shift and, and, and there would be, a, you know, an acceleration in, into the right types of investment. And I am pleased to say that at the Clean Growth Fund, Strathclyde Local Authority Pension Fund is one of our LP investors. And I'm hopeful that more local authority pension funds will follow their lead. So there's absolutely no doubt that the power of collective public is really strong and listened to by governments, businesses and communities 
public opinion can be so quickly galvanised to, um, you know, affect change with events like the Blue Planet series. And interestingly, pollution and environment has been on the Ipsos Mori list of the top 10 concerns since 2019 for, for the public. So we have seen a significant change from that in the rate of actions to tackle climate change across the board. We are here at Expo seeking opportunities to generate new ideas to build a better world is very central to the themes of Expo. And clearly, the Clean Growth Fund is seeking exciting businesses to support. But what role do you see the fund playing in helping us to radically rethink the ways we will live in the future? The Clean Growth Fund looks at ways in which we can use technology to decarbonise our homes and you know, our transport, the way we get around. Um, it's through new technologies we invest in and support and think, rethink how we will live in the future. So, for example, the investment in the zero emission boiler moves our domestic heating supply from gas to electricity. And Indra's electric vehicle charges allow us to more easily transition from petrol to diesel powered cars um, to EVs. And so the more we can use technology to decarbonize the things we actually enjoy doing, the less need there is for human behavior change, which is probably the preferred solution as we all appreciate that behavior change can be extremely difficult to affect. But there will be activities, of course, that can't be fully decarbonised with technology and change will be necessary. And I'm thinking of things such as what we eat. I anticipate we'll need to move to a diet that's more plant-based and dramatically reduce our consumption of meat, in particularly beef and lamb. What we wear and the goods we buy, it's more resource efficient to buy high quality and use it for longer. And I appreciate this will um, anticipate this will change what we wear and how we buy clothes Rental businesses for clothes are growing extremely rapidly. And, you know, when we look, you mentioned about uh, transport um, and flying. We need behaviour change and innovation in flying. So over the next decade, we really need to minimise how much we fly to be able to buy us the time to find the solutions required to decarbonise um, flying like sustainable aviation fuel or fuel cells. And then travel by plane might be a viable option once again. But of course, asking people to limit their flying is can be difficult. And so a technology solution to the problem is preferable if, if that can be achieved. So I think, you know, kind of in, in summary, we recognise that behaviour change will be necessary to achieve net zero but we don't underestimate you know, how big a barrier that is to decarbonisation. Beverly, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for your wonderful insights. It's been great talking to you and thank you to the audience for listening. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.